Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Arcade News Podcast, episode number 271. First, I would like to welcome all of you into 2021. Uh, it's nice to see all of you guys back, um, and thank you for sticking with us despite all of the hiatuses that we've had uh, both before and after the COVID with all the stuff that's been going on with me personally, um, and also all the corona stuff. And a great thanks to Diego and all the news team here at Stone Pages who uh, entrust me with the podcast and use their time to collect and edit all these stories down and putting them on the podcast webpage. It's um, it's a great honor to be allowed to uh, present this uh, this podcast. Personally, I'd also like to apologize for any sound qualities. Currently, my mic arm has uh, disappeared in my whole moving chaos. I've moved in with my girlfriend quite recently. So right now, my mic is stacked on top of uh, three rolls of tape, and I hope that it sounds pretty all right. But um, again, I apologize for any sound problems, and I'll uh, fix that in the coming weeks, hopefully. But without further ado, I would like to get into the news of today's podcast. For all of those of you who are first-timers, welcome. And if you don't already know, all of the news that we cover today can be found on news.stonepages.com, where Diego and the rest of the team have gathered the sources for all of the today's stories, and you can find them there and go back and read the original articles. There is also a ton of other stories that we have not covered on today's podcast, and I would really recommend you to go there and look at them try to figure out what else is going on around the world. So, these stories for today's podcast range from starting in England, where we have the earliest evidence of TB being found, that is tuberculosis. Then we'll be going to the Upper Paleolithic, where the first identical twins, or rather the earliest evidence of identical twins, have been found. Following that, we'll be looking at some DIY projects, namely fixing veneers in France, as we all know and love to do in our spare time. After that, we'll be looking at cave paintings in California, where the Datura flower has been uh, helping people in rituals, and the cave paintings show this appreciation. Following that, an ancient dog has been found in Sweden being buried with its master, the earliest evidence of a dog having been done so. Then two stories on gender and the gendering of work, uh, starting in Spain with how Bronze Age women used their teeth as tools during uh, processing, and to Peru where hunter-gatherers seem to be a lot more female-centric than previously thought. And finally, we will be covering a story that mends both the modern and the ancient, with plastic being found at an Iron Age reconstruction village in Wales, and how these finds help us not only uh, look at our own archaeological evidence, but what we will be leaving behind, but also how we manage waste in the modern day with so many plastic floating around. But without further ado, let's get to it. And now for the first story of today's podcast, namely an archaeological excavation at Tarrant Hinton showing the first known case of tuberculosis in Britain during the Iron Age. A uh, very apt story considering the current timing of the of everything going on. Now, archaeological excavations at Tarrant Hinton in Dorset between 1967 and 1985 uncovered a variety of evidence for settlements between the Iron Age and the Roman period. Quite possibly the most significant discovery was the skeleton of an Iron Age man whose spine displayed signs of tuberculosis, also known as TB, and he died somewhere between 400 and 230 BCE, and it is the earliest known case of TB found in Britain. 
A new chemical analysis of the man's bones and teeth show he arrived in Dorset as a child around the age of eight and came from an area of carboniferous limestone outside of Britain. This is quite possibly southern or western Ireland, the Atlantic coast of southwest France, or the Cantabrian mountains of northern Spain. Either way, he definitely came from quite far off. Further analysis from strontium isotopes show he was living on the southern British chalklands between the ages of 8 to 14, and the carbon and nitrogen isotopes indicate that the man ate a mixed diet consisting of plants grown on chalkland and got his protein from cattle and sheep, which is a less varied diet than the other Iron Age people as there is no evidence of fish or pig. James Webb, an acting museum director, says that the man lived in a small farming settlement and was between 30 and 40 years old when he died, and he must have been in considerable pain, suggesting his community must have cared for him. Another expert in the study, Dr. Simon Mays, who is a human skeletal biologist for Historical England, says DNA evidence confirms that the man contracted the disease from another person rather than from infected meat or milk, and also adds that finds of deceased skeletons in continental Europe tell us that tuberculosis was present there for thousands of years before our Tarrant Hinton man was born. From the first story about the earliest known case of TB in England, we now go to the earliest known case of identical twins found in an Upper Paleolithic grave. A DNA analysis of a grave from the Upper Paleolithic period containing the remains of two newborn babies has revealed that they were in fact identical twins. This is the earliest confirmed monozygotic twins ever discovered from an archaeological perspective. They were uncovered at the Gravetian site of Kremswagbel in Austria, and the twins were buried next to a three-month-old infant who, from the DNA, seemed to have been a third-degree male relative, possibly a first cousin. Now, at the best of times, immature human remains, especially from the Upper Paleolithic period, are extremely rare. And now, to find three that reveal such new insights into the funerary practices of early humans is not only a unique, but also a significant discovery, as it tells us a lot more about the people who were living in the area and what they were doing than, for example, the houses and some of the materials they do. This is on a very deep and personal level, and it's extremely hard to discover just on any, even on the best days of archaeology. The area, uh, Krems, was home to traveling groups of hunter-gatherers around 40,000 to 30,000 years ago. The site of Krems Vakbeh, where the graves were found, is exceptional for its well-preserved organic materials. The grave not only contained the three infants, but also mammoth ivory beads, a perforated fox incisor, and three perforated mollusk shells. Other key features that were found five meters beneath the surface included a large hearth with connected pits, the infant burials, and the artifact including an art object and personal adornments, which related to the Pavlovian culture, a variant in the earlier Gravetian culture. The first grave, which contained the uh, two twins, was an oval shape and contained the remains of the two infants, each embedded in red ochre and placed next to each other on their left sides facing east with their heads to the north. The bodies were also laid to rest with 53 mammoth ivory beads, which had once been threaded on a string, and the beads are uniform in size and show no signs of wear, possibly indicating that they were made for this purpose or as a gift to the twins. After the infants had been placed in the graves, it was sealed using the shoulder blade of a mammoth, which had shown signs of being chipped into shape. The DNA analysis of the twins' teeth do reveal, though, that they were full-term newborns, while one died at birth, the other lived for about seven weeks. 
and the grave of the first was reopened and its contents arranged to make room for the second. Now, the third infant, the possible first cousin, was found in a longer and narrower grave pit, which also contained evidence of adornments, including a suspected mammary clock pin. However, the grave was backfilled with soil, so the body was poorly preserved in comparison to the two other bodies. Now, for the third story of today's podcast, for anybody looking for another DIY project, we'll be covering something slightly different here. Namely, how to mend a giant manure for all those who have one or two in your backyards. The story originates back in 1947, where the giant manure of Casejo in Irevan, Mobillon, France, was struck by lightning. This uh, lightning strike then uh, threatened to split the block or the manure into several blocks and has been consolidated in an unprecedented rescue operation. The stone itself is part of a Neolithic alignment, which lies 8 kilometers northwest of Kanak in southern Brittany. Two local sculptors who are specialized in restoration of stones, Solan Moreau and Emmanuel Bertrand, who had also been uh, called in to clean graffiti from other miniers, were trusted with the work. As Solan Moreau points out, it's not like a cathedral. You can't just change the whole stone. You don't touch the outside. No, he doesn't seem terribly bothered at the idea of repairing this ancient granite giant standing at more than three and a half meters tall. So, for all of those looking at uh, giving this a try at home, uh, here are the steps necessary. First, scaffolding was erected around the manier, with straps securing some of the weakened blocks. Sadly, the cracks will always be seen, and we can't really do much about that. The next step requires the drilling of eight cylindrical holes, 32 millimeters in diameter, at different levels, using a water-cooled diamond-coated drill bit, which has no vibration and therefore no risk of further damage to the meniers. However, do take your time. It takes about eight hours to drill one meter into the meniere. Following this, a meter-long, 30 millimeter diameter brass rod weighing in at about 11 kilos is then inserted into each hole, which stabilizes the cracks. Brass is uh, very good for this, as it, it's uh, cur- very durable and holds well over time. After this, all the entrance holes are sealed with lime, uh, no glue or resin, which is uh, good because this uh, can actually uh, migrate into the stone. And in about 2,000 years or so, it will still be there, according to Solon Moreau. This entirely publicly funded operation cost about 10,000 euros. And according to Laura Diodville, who is the conservator of the monument, this is a world first. Now, scientists who are specializing themselves in Stonehenge, Galatia, and Eastern Ireland are also interested in this restoration, and for good reason. Following the story about reparations of Meniers, we have ancient cave art being inspired by hallucinogens. This is linked with new research, which has uncovered evidence linking prehistoric cave paintings in California and a poisonous flower known for its hallucinogenic properties. According to researchers from the University of Central Lancashire and the University of Southampton, native Californians made use of the Datura Riti plant in various rituals. It is therefore proposed that the rock art was created as part of a hallucinogenic experience. This discovery was made during excavations at a cave site in California after archaeologists uncovered cave paintings of what appeared to be the Datura flower. Uh, the Datura flower, also known as Jimson weed, has a long history of medicinal and religious use in southwestern U.S. All parts of the plant contain hazardous level of toxic alkaloids, and it is 
fatal if consumed. However, the plant also has a history of being used recreationally and has been known to induce hallucinations. In native California, the plant has a strong association with adolescent initiations and the tourist root was processed into a drink for young members of the community to drink. At the site, archaeologists discovered chewed up datura, uh, as long, along with the paintings, strengthening the link between the hallucinogens and the cave paintings. Because the paintings depict the flower itself rather than the visions it induced, the researchers believe it shows an appreciation for the flower's properties and that the site was used as a communal space for seasonal gatherings. Also, the art played a significant role in the local community's day-to-day business. For our next story, we have the ever-loved, and something I think that will stay with us forever, story of a dog and his master, with an 8,400-year-old dog buried with his master. This follows after months of excavation in Sweden, revealing what remains to be a long-vanished breed of dog buried more than 8,400 years ago beside his master. The dog itself was unearthed in September, about 125 kilometers northeast of Melmö, with a 250-kilo block containing the dog being transported to Blekinge Museum in Karlskrona, where the sediment was removed to expose the bones. Ola Magnell, osteologist at Blekinge Museum, calls it one of the oldest grave finds of dogs in the country, adding that the dog is well-preserved and the fact that dog is buried in the middle of the Stone Age settlement is unique. The breed seems to have resembled a powerful greyhound and the area where the dog's remains were found had been the focus of one of the largest archaeological digs ever undertaken in the region. Researchers uncovered evidence of at least 56 structures, as well as fireplaces and traces of various pits and post holes, plus large amounts of flint. The experts believe that the site was inhabited by hunters during the Stone Age, with the settlement having been once on the coast before a sudden and violent rise in sea level covered it with layers of sand and mud that preserved all of its artifacts. In August this year, researchers in Italy discovered what may be the oldest dog remains ever of a pet dog actually dating back to between 14,000 and 20,000 years ago. And hopefully we will have more words on this soon and present them on the podcast. This is more of a heads up for both of the stories we'll be doing. Uh, both of them do concern gender, but I find it interesting how diametrically opposed they are. The first one we'll be covering is um, that some specialized tasks are were specialized according to gender almost 4,000 years ago. This comes as the result of a study of dentalware of 106 individuals in the Castello Alto archaeological site around 140 kilometers northeast of Granada, Spain. Here they found that only women used their front teeth as tools to make threads and cords. For some background on this, between 2200 and 1550 BCE, the culture of El Aga, which developed in the southeastern Iberia Peninsula, and uh, it is a well-known complex society that practiced social differences based on gender, age, and specialization in tasks such as ceramics, stone, textiles, and metals. Furthermore, a recent study by the Institute of Human Paleoecology and Social Evolution, IPAHES, and the University of Rovira e Virgili, URV, conducted in collaboration with the Anthropology Laboratory of the University of Granada, revealed that Bronze Age women were using their front teeth to perform certain tasks associated with making threads and cords as early as 1900 to 1600 BCE. The signs of wear included not only notches, chipped enamel, but also grooves resulting from the manipulation of fibers of plant and animal origin. 
and only a small group of people were making threads, and those using their teeth were exclusively women of different ages. The older the individual, the more pronounced aware, inferring that specialization began in adolescent and continued throughout their lives. This study forms as part of the research strands that IPHES uh, has aiming to identify the use of teeth as tools. As promised, here is the uh, second article concerning the role of gender in ancient societies. Uh, this concerns the remains of a female hunter who is challenging ancient gender roles. Now, importantly, this actually takes place in Peru, which I do realize is quite a far ways away from uh, Spain or the Iberian Peninsula, but I still find it interesting and um, hope you will as well. Now, the remains of a female hunter were found back in 2018 during an archaeological excavation at a high-altitude site called Riyamaya Pacha in Peru. The young woman, who lived around 9,000 years ago, was buried alongside what is called a well-stocked big-game hunting toolkit, including stone projectile points for felling large animals, a knife and flakes of rock for removing internal organs, and tools for scraping and tanning hides. Protein analysis of uh, dental rem remnants helped confirm her sex, and her bones suggest that she may have been between 17 to 19 years old at the time of her death. The researchers then looked at archaeological records of 429 other burials throughout North and South America from about 14,000 to 8,000 years ago. They found that in 27 individuals buried with big game hunting tools, 11 were female and 16 were male. And based on their findings, the team suggests that between 30% and 50% of big, big game hunters who lived more than 10,000 years ago in the Americas may have been women. Now, Dr. Randy Haas, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of California, Davis, and lead author on the study, says it is well established that in most contemporary and recent societies of hunter-gatherers, hunting is predominantly done by males, and archaeological evidence has tended to support the conclusion that past gender roles were similar. On occasion, female remains have been associated with materials that suggested that they were hunters, but the examples have been treated as outliers. However, in Dr. Haas's opinion, it is now clear that sexual division of labor was fundamentally different, likely more equitable in our species' deep hunter-gatherers past. Again, I do realize the not only geographic, but also the chronological difference between the two stories, but I think it's extremely interesting to look at the changes in societies, and especially over such wide births. Sadly, we can't exactly ask the people of the past in person, why the big difference in not only the gendered uh, workspaces, but also why, in some cases, women were more accepted as hunter-gatherers um, than in other places. But it is, after all, interesting. And I wonder if it has something to do more with the types of game that you're hunting. So, for example, with larger crews, you just need more people. Thereby, you have... To use both genders, whereas in some cases, maybe if you're using more dogs for hunting, you can have a more uh, monogendered hunting party, as uh, we've seen in Siberia, where they've been breeding or where they used to breed dogs for hunting polar bears. I wonder if those hunters were male as well. And it would be an interesting overall study to compare hunting traditions in regards to the tools they use both um, as far as flint dives goes, but also the animals that they use for helping hunting, and at least in my opinion anyways. 
for the last story of today's podcast, we have um, what I would call a very unique story. A lot of the time when I'm out excavating, uh, we're usually asked about, uh, and we usually also discuss, more importantly, what is going to be the archaeological remains that we as a modern society leave behind because we don't tend to use, um, you know, animal bones as tools or metal um, as tools, and or rather we do, but we don't tend to just throw them out in the village green, so to speak. We collect it all in one place, and that's usually taken off somewhere else, or it's recycled for something else. Um, and essentially, it's um, it's a very interesting discussion, and uh, this story actually kind of reflects probably one of the more uh, useful things that we're going to be able to leave behind, though it is also kind of sad. This is specifically concerning 2,000 pieces of plastic that were found at an Iron Age site in Wales. Castle Henleys is the site of an Iron Age village in the Welsh Pembrokeshire Coast National Park, and it once was the home to a wealthy family that included a community of up to 100 people who worked together to produce food and materials 2,000 years ago. Now, the site includes four reconstructed roundhouses, which are circular in structure with conical roofs made of wood and straw. And archaeologists and researchers rebuilt these structures using the same materials villages would have used during the Iron Ages. These houses have been there for nearly 30 years, and each year being visited by countless tourists and about 6,000 school children per year. Barring last year, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, the sites of the roundhouses provided a unique opportunity for researchers, and what began as an experiment to understand how building materials decay and degrade over time turned into something else a lot more interesting. This is actually when researchers uncovered a wealth of plastic, namely 2,000 plastic items to be exact. Although the historic site is well-maintained and cleaned, small plastic remnants of activity by visitors, children routinely eating lunches in one of the structures were able to hide beneath benches in dark corners of the roundhouses. And among the plastic fragments were utensils, bottle caps, straws, straw wrappers, plastic bags, plastic food wrap, and candy wrappers, and even apple stickers. According to Professor Harold Meisem, who is the lead researcher and professor of archaeology at the University of Liverpool, the amount of plastic litter was a surprise. The plastic creates an archaeological signature of our time, the Anthropocene period, but one which is environmentally damaged. However, the team did note that the discoveries would help uncover how and where the plastic waste accumulated, and this would help reduce the amount of incorporated uh, in the ground. They are also working with the Pembrokeshire Coast National Park to help educate the public and raise awareness over the environmental concerns that may be raised by something so simple as a packed school lunch. But Midem also said he hoped the Plastic Age did not last millennia like the Iron Age, with many initiatives now pushing to switch from disposable, disposable plastic to plasticized items, this may be a narrow but archaeological distinctive chronological horizon. And with that final interesting story, we have sadly reached the end of today's podcast. I must admit that personally, I loved the last story about um, the archaeological finds of the Anthropocene period. It's definitely... A discussion that's worth having uh, going forward, and it's uh, something that's going to be, I think, quite unique, um, as I did mention, going forward, especially for our culture as we call it now, or the Plastic Age, as some people have jokingly called it. 
But if you're not satisfied with today's news, you can always go to news.stonepages.com where you can read uh, the uh, stories that we cover today as well as see all of the sources for where we got our stories and any stories that we may have missed. And there are actually quite a few. December was a good month for uh, archaeological stories. If you like today's podcast, feel free to subscribe. Um, it definitely helps out. And uh, hopefully this year I'm planning to do a lot more as I've gotten a bit more of a uh, good setup and a better place to record or rather a more stable place to record than I've had before. If you want to contact us, you can do so on uh, Twitter and you can also now go on Facebook and find our uh, Stone Pages Facebook page. You can also write to me at philip at stonepages.com, which you can do so by following or clicking the link in the uh, episode description. And you can write to me directly if you have any uh, feedback for, um, for me. But without further ado, I must sadly uh, say goodbye, and I will see you guys next time. Bye-bye.